The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to have with us Ms. Renee Dufault, who was an environmental health officer at the FDA, somewhat of a whistleblower, who discovered that high-fructose corn syrup contained mercury. And this came as quite a surprise, and we had conversations a couple of years ago about this, and I wanted to have you on to talk with our listeners about what this means to our food system and what you're doing now and how you've applied this knowledge of mercury to looking at autism. So welcome. Thank you for inviting me, Melinda. I appreciate it. Well, I'm very happy to have this story unfold. Now, you were working at the FDA for how many years? I worked there for nine years. And what were you doing as an environmental health officer? Uh, My primary job was to investigate potential contamination in laboratories that the FDA had been using for a number of years and wanted to close. So there were labs all over the country that needed closing, and my job was to identify whether or not there were any contaminants associated with those closures, with the operations that they conducted at the research labs. And the contaminants varied depending on what type of research was done at the laboratory. How did you find mercury in high fructose corn syrup? Well, during my job as an environmental health officer and and doing laboratory decommissioning projects, I kept finding mercury in the uh, plumbing lines. So I was trying to figure out where this mercury was coming from, and through that investigation, I found out that was that 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 there was mercury in the chemicals that the scientists were using, and the way the mercury's got in the chemicals is because uh, in the chloralkali industry, one of the processes that they use to make the chloralkali products, like sodium hydroxide and chlorine and potassium hydroxide, they use mercury in their process. So that the mercury, you know, stays in the chemicals that are made from those chloralkali products and become contaminants in the chemicals. Okay, so like chlorine bleach, for example, sodium hypochlorite could contain mercury if it were made with uh, mercury cell chloroacrylate product. So that's in the in the in the laboratories in the olden days. They used to, you know, there was no hazardous waste disposal practices that were back in the olden days. They, you know, things got flushed down the drain and so forth. They didn't have uh, regulations. And the labs I was I I was involved in decommissioning were very old. So that's why I was finding mercury in the uh, plumbing system because it was associated with the chemicals that had been used over the years. So anyway, to make a long story short is because of my work in laboratory decommissioning and tracking the use of mercury cell chloroacrylate chemicals in chemical manufacturing, other chemical manufacturing, a river network watershed organization asked me to do a PowerPoint uh, presentations for a national conference that they had on the mercury cycle. And so while I was putting that together, I started asking questions and, and wondering, well, 
what other products are mercury cell chloroalkyl chemicals used? You know, what other products do we uh, have on the market that are using these mercury cell chloroalkyl products? And one of the chemical company websites said their biggest user was high fructose corn syrup manufacturers. So I thought, holy cow, maybe there's mercury in high fructose corn syrup. So I started investigating and, uh, you know, collecting samples of high fructose corn syrup from different manufacturers. And, and then one thing led to another, and that's how I, I found the mercury issue to be, uh, you know, to be happening. So this was back in 2005. You were finding detectable levels of mercury, and it, the data that I have showed, show that you had found detectable levels of mercury in 9 out of 20 samples. Right. That was a certain set of samples that were collected. There okay. Were different sets of samples collected, but in that particular group, yes, that was that, that those were findings. And the what did the FDA do when you reported this? Well, I had reported previous sampling work to the FDA Center for Food Safety Food Additives Group, and along with uh, I had some collaborators at UC Davis and folks outside of the agency to help with the analysis and so forth. And we had actually reported diff- a diff- the results of different samples. So FDA was made aware that there was a potential problem at that time. That was, I believe it was uh, the fall of 2005. And then in 2009, in the Journal of Environmental Health, we had the report that high fructose corn syrup was or could be a carrier for mercury. And what happened was the the Corn Refiners Association said that that article was outdated and that high fructose corn syrup manufacturers stopped using mercury. And then the David Walenga with the Institute of Ag and Trade Policy, their group tested 55 name brand food and beverage products where high fructose corn syrup was the first or second ingredient and they found mercury in nearly one in three of the tested samples. Right. So uh, what the, I, I can't speculate as to what the corn uh, industry was doing. Guess is that they probably decided at the time that our article came out that they would stop using the mercury cell. Then they could say, we're not using it anymore. Right. So, of course, uh, that would be the only explanation for Dr. Willinga finding mercury in in products that were on the shelves in 2009. That is what I would think. Uh, and then we don't really know whether they stopped for sure or, or went back to using the mercury-grade chloroquine products. We just don't know because there's really no monitoring being done as far as I know. And FDA, uh, I don't know if anyone at FDA is doing any follow-up. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any report, you know, published. Or, I, I did actually get something in peer review because people contact me now to read peer review different journal articles and I am aware of other countries who are investigating the issue and who have found mercury in corn syrup products recently and that's all I can tell you on that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I do know that Dr. Willinga has said that the science increasingly suggests that there may be no safe level of exposure to mercury. Yeah, that's correct and, and in fact the science is starting to indicate that it doesn't matter what form the mercury is, whether it's inorganic or attached to a uh, organic compound, molecular structure or whatever, 
uh, inorganic, organic mercury, it doesn't matter what the form is. Uh, we're finding out that the mercury bioaccumulates over time in human beings and uh, affects, you know, it affects our epigenome. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's just a matter of time before, it'll probably take 20 years before the different governments decide not to use mercury cell chloroclide chemicals in food manufacturing. It takes time, just like it took time to get lead out of paint and lead out of gasoline. You know, I mean, it took many, many years to, to make that go away. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's going to be t- taking time. Some countries have outlawed the use of high fructose corn syrup. That's a great analogy to look at how long it took us to get lead out of water and gas or pipes and gas versus, you know, how long it's going to take us to address this issue with mercury. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about one of your latest very popular papers that was published in the Behavioral and Brain Functions Journal. This is fully available online. The title is Mercury Exposure, Nutritional Deficiencies, and Metabolic Disruptions May Affect Learning in Children. And you are the primary author on on this article, but you've got a great team together looking at how mercury affects brain function. So let's talk a little bit just simply about how does mercury hurt us? Well, mercury can displace other elements in our bodies that we need, essential elements that Mm -hmm. we need to be able to be healthy. So mercury is like a foreign agent, if you will. It comes into our body, and then there's biochemical reactions that occur that, you know, it has to go somewhere. So in in its finding its place, it can dislodge, if you will, uh, important essential elements that we actually need in our body to keep us healthy. For example, zinc, which is very important for immune function, becomes displaced when mercury is introduced into the body. So... That can, you know, over time, if we if we eat a lot of foods that might contain mercury, then we could become zinc deficient. In fact, human studies indicate that if you eat a lot of high fructose corn syrup or if you eat a lot of food color additives and sodium benzoate, for example, these all of these things are made with mercury cell products, then you uh, the studies have shown that you can have zinc loss and even become zinc deficient, especially in certain kids, like kids with attention deficit disorder. So, I mean, we have these, these human studies that have already been done. So the, the biggest danger is that as we have more and more mercury exposure, then our diet becomes imbalanced, if you will, because we're losing minerals and essential elements and minerals that we need to keep us healthy. So, and that leads to disease conditions like potentially autism or uh, Alzheimer's. So that's why diet is so important. And, and if we're pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant, we really need to stay away from processed foods that might potentially contain mercury or some other uh, toxic elements because the way the standards are now, certain amounts of mercury is allowed in food and uh, other contaminants as well that are not necessarily good for your, your brain health. So, you know, we, we, we have a ways to go before we come, before the regulations out in the world are up to snuff, you know, as far as what, what we need to keep healthy. But, and, and there's big issues, international trade issues. I mean, sometimes they want to have a little bit of mercury in the product, I think, if they can, and maybe not mercury, but perhaps other agents that will kill bacteria and mold in the in the food product, so it stays on the shelf longer. So you know, I mean, there's a lot of issues that are related to 
what we're talking about. You used a word earlier, and I'd like to go back and revisit that. You used the word epigenome Mm -hmm. and how different toxins can affect our epigenome. Uh, I was just at a conference about pesticides, very similar situation where you have a toxic compound in the environment that affects children in utero and that those changes that affect that infant actually pass on through generations. How would you describe for our listeners the epigenome? Well, the epigenome is um, it's, it's beyond the, the human genome. The human genome was a big project, and they wanted to crack the, the genetic code of humans, and they did that. And then what they found out was that that didn't explain disease because some people might have the same genes, but then one gets cancer and one doesn't. Uh, or one kid is autistic. In twin studies, one is autistic, they have the same DNA, and the other one's not. So what's happening? Well, they found out that uh, there are, there's like, like chemicals that are associated with the genes. And, and, and there's a, a group of chemicals that's, no, that's known as the methyl group, which essentially contains a carbon atom. And that there are different, it's very complicated, but the bottom line is that these chemicals in the, in the epigenome that, that turn genes on and off, these chemicals are like, like clothing around the gene, if you will. And uh, they can silence the gene or they can, or they can turn, it, uh, turn it on, off. On or off, you know, silence it, turning it off, or, or, or turn it on. So some of these chemicals can interact with environmental agents like mercury or pesticides, uh, chemical compounds that are neurotoxins. And that can change, uh, these, these uh, environmental factors can turn genes on and off. And that would, that's, that, so exposures that we get as individuals, you know, that would explain the twin studies where one, one twin gets cancer and the other doesn't, or one twin is autistic and the other's not. Right. It's the environmental factors that, you know, and part of that is nutrition. You know, right. what, what are we putting in our body? Exactly. Well, it turns out we are what we eat, essentially. Let me just interrupt our conversation for one moment to remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Ms. Renee Dufault, who was at the FDA for several years, where she worked at it as an environmental health officer and discovered contamination of high fructose corn syrup with mercury. And so now we are talking about mercury's effects on the body and the developing infants in utero and why mercury is so very dangerous to especially pregnant women and children. Well, let me ask you something, Renee. You had mentioned that, I believe it was in in this last paper in Behavioral and Brain Functions, that you saw a connection between the increase in high fructose corn syrup in our diet and autism. Would you like to explain that? Well, what we did was we looked at the consumption rates of high fructose corn syrup nationally in the U.S., and then we uh, the only state that really had uh, tracked their autism rates for 20 years was California. So we looked at California's rates of autism, and we compared those to the consumption of high fructose corn syrup, and we found that at the peak increase of the peak point where high fructose corn syrup had been consumed, you know, because right now consumption is going down, but at the peak point of consumption, that was the peak of the uh, increase of rates of, uh, of, of autism, increase in cases. It was the uh, peak. So there was some association there. 
So all that shows is that the high fructose corn syrup could have been a contributing factor to the autism rates in California. But I mean, it, what we're finding in uh, in epigenetics is it, this is just confirmatory. I mean, there's study after study that's showing other things, other potential factors that uh, uh, could be uh, could, could contribute to the development of autism. Iodine deficiency uh, is one. I mean, so. It, it 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 just goes back to the the whole truth I think, it, which is what you put in your body is going to affect your health. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, and, we don't have enough information about the kinds of contaminants that are in our food system to make choices. And then for some populations, there really isn't much of a choice, and um, it really becomes an issue of social and environmental justice, I think, as well as public health. I want to go back to that journal article, then we'll make sure that we have this listed, that's the mercury exposure, nutritional deficiencies, and metabolic disruptions may affect learning in children. And you cite here a reference that children with autism spectrum disorders have increased body burdens of mercury. Yes, they do. We, there's been a, a few different studies that show how that to, show that to be the case, and gen, GEER, uh, G-E-I-R, G-E-I-E-R, I think is yes. Dr. Deer's group. They showed that when you do chelation therapy on children with autism, as opposed to children that don't have autism, then a whole bunch of mercury comes is eliminated from the bodies of children with autism, leading one to suspect that they're hanging on to the mercury. Okay, and uh, if you do chelation therapy on anybody, there's going to be mercury elimination. But in autistic children, it's a lot. Okay, as opposed to uh, children that don't exhibit autistic symptoms. And then if you look at babies' first haircuts, you know, when the and there's been studies on babies' first haircuts, and it shows that there are mercury levels in baby hair of autistic children who turn out to be autistic is very low, indicating that they're not excreting it versus a normal child that you're going to find some mercury in their hair because, you know, that's a way to eliminate it. So yeah, there's there's evidence to suggest that that mercury is certainly being uh, held w- within the child of a, a body uh, of a child on uh, an autistic child. What do you recommend, Renee, with regard to what you've discovered and your work now? You're working with children. I should let our listeners know that I'm speaking to you. You're you're actually based on the Big Island in Hawaii. You've since retired from the FDA. What would you like our listeners to know and do? With regard to your work, well, uh, I think that if you if you have a child that well, first of all, if you're pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant, you really need to make sure your diet is, is, is uh, free of preservatives and chemical additives and so forth. And uh, you, that that's number one. And then if you end up with a child that's exhibiting autistic symptoms or symptoms of autism, then you know you're going to need some help there. And uh, there's the problem is that there are so many potential contributing factors to the development of that child's uh, condition. They could be, uh, you know, over, have problems uh, eliminating lead, or they could have problems eliminating mercury, or there could be a, a pesticide uh, exposure. We just don't know enough yet. But you, you should know that there have been numerous clinical trials, if you will, of children that have responded to different therapies autistic children, and there's a group called Autism Research Institute, and they have published some work 
that shows something like 40 or 50 percent of children do better. They start getting better and they, their symptoms start going away when you take them off of foods that are contain chemicals. Okay. Some, some kids do better on a gluten case and free diet. Others, uh, I worked with a child recently who uh, has remarkably improved just by taking them off all foods that contained any chemicals that could have mercury uh, in them. So, and it's just uh, the uh, parents are thrilled. So it's really, you need to know that there are biomedical treatments. There are dietary changes that can take place where your children can recover. So the first thing is prevention. And then if you you didn't know and uh, you had a child that is autistic or ADHD, then there are things you can do from a dietary standpoint to so that they improve their function is improved and, and they can learn and uh, get on with their life and, and become productive citizens. One of our guests on the radio is Elizabeth Strickland and she is a registered dietitian who works with autistic children and she's given us some fantastic advice about the different dietary issues um, just as you mentioned in your paper the importance of certain essential fatty acids in the diet also very important um, and if any of our listeners want to go to the Food Sleuth Radio archives and listen to that interview, that, that would be a very important one, I think a good partner with our conversation today. Oh, well, I, and let me also share the fact that the Center for Science and the Public Interest has also done research looking at food dyes and food additives and how they affect children's behavior. So you've, you've hit on several really key points here, Renee, and I appreciate that. Tell me, what were some of your biggest surprises in your work? What was the big surprise in my work? Yeah, did you have any big surprises, either when you were at FDA or when you were putting together this paper? Well, the biggest, well, it took me a long time to publish my findings. And uh, the only reason why I think I was able to do it is because I, I found other collaborators who had, had done similar work and, and could, they had, their knowledge complemented mine. So we pulled together as a group, a collaborative team, and so I couldn't have done it without them. But even so, we had to submit our findings to several different journals, and of course the paper got better as we went along. Both papers got better. But there was some resistance to publishing, and I think now there's no resistance. The world has come to conclude, if you will, that uh, now we know about epigenetics and, and that environmental factors can play a role, including diet in the development of neurodevelopmental disorders, uh, learning disabilities. But but I think we were sort of ahead of the game there for, for a couple years before we could get the peers out there, you know, and peer review the other scientists to sign off on what we were saying, if you will. So the resistance, the resistance to uh, going down the path that we're on now, which pretty much I think there's consensus. In fact, the American Association of Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities has a consensus statement now, an environmental health initiative. And so people are pretty much on the same page. And if people wanted to look that position up, where might they find that? They could go to the American Association of Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities web page and look that up. I could send you the link and you could put it on your... Uh, we'll put it on the website, right. sure. Yeah, because this is not, you know, the, the um, academic community is coming around and... Uh, we are not out there, you know, like in left field. You know, everyone is on the pretty much on the same page now. So 
I mean, the consensus is building. Renee, uh, we just have a, a, a couple of minutes left. Let me ask you, give us a charge. Give our listeners some advice that they can take and run with. Well, just be very cautious about the foods that you feed your children. And, uh, you know, start looking at labels and, and, and watch out for certain chemicals that are being used as preservatives. Uh, that's my, my advice. Are there any specific ingredients that are specific red flags to you? Well, of course, on, on what's already been published, the food dyes, food colors, sodium benzoate, high fructose corn syrup. There are some other additives that uh, I am actually writing a book, so I don't want to in the book the pro- royalties are going to go towards funding research for to find out which chemicals are contaminated that yeah. they're using for preservatives. So um, as I move through writing this book, there will be more tips as I do my research. Fantastic. Uh, for sure, the, the published stuff that they can hang their hat on, I've, I've mentioned. Wonderful. I want to thank you so much for being with us today, Renee. We've been speaking with Renee Dufault, who was an environmental investigator with the FDA. She found mercury in high fructose corn syrup, and her story goes on from there. But we will make sure to have a link to several key papers that Renee has mentioned in the interview. And I want to remind our listeners that you've been listening to Food Sleuth Radio, which is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Renee, thank you so much for speaking out, for being a whistleblower, for being a sleuth yourself, finding something wrong and speaking out about it. Well, thank you, Melinda, for for, uh, having me today, and I hope our conversation is helping someone out there.